may have you turn to uh, Proverbs 11. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 30. So again, Proverbs 11, verses 28 through 30. Try to get my business organized up here. You know, we're a gospel people at Lifeway, so everything centers on the gospel, and then life flows out from that. Uh, mentioned it before, prayed about it, we've sung about it, and that is that our standing with God is not our merit, it's a merit given to us because of what Jesus accomplished, all by grace, right? It's a gift of God that um, somebody like uh, you or me could be in His presence, belong to Him, um, share eternity with Him, have a part in His kingdom, all because of what Jesus accomplished. Then you take a day like today, and you think, well, how does somebody like that, how does a gospel person live, which is an everyday question, but on today we think about how do you do that as a family, and, and in particular, how do you do that leading your family? Maybe you think about my family, and you know, you should think about yours. Um, my great uncle Lex uh, was the main male influence in my dad's life. Uh, when I was little, little, uh, you know, but kind of before kindergarten, uh, he and my aunt Sadie lived outside of Ponca City, Oklahoma, and you know I was just born with them in my life. You, as a kid, that's the way it works, right? You don't you don't like pick, you know, like that. That's those are my people or whatever. You just like put there, and those are your people, and these people are just there. And again, when I was little, little, sometimes we as kids would go stay there. My, my brother and I would stay with them. Sometimes my cousin Alan. And it's funny what you remember whenever you're that young. You know, I don't know if you have any memories like that whenever you're really young, but um, I remember their storm cellar, you know, big tornadoes in Oklahoma, and so we'd use it as a fort, and uh, people there, a lot of times that was the, you know, a, a cool pantry, that's where whenever you canned, whatever your vegetables were, whatever, you kept it in cellars, a little cooler, and it had space there. I remember now, I'm not condoning this, okay, I just want you to know we're talking about uh, memories. Um, but I remember my Uncle Lex, he rolled his own cigarettes. And as a kid, I just thought that was one of the coolest things ever, right? And he'd show us how to do it, pull out the paper, and then uh, from his tobacco pouch, he'd put like the right amount on there, and he'd lick it and roll it, and it looked like the perfect cigarette. Again, not condoning it. Um, and then he would let us try. Uh, you know, obviously I wasn't, you know, we weren't raised in a church uh, uh, with when we went to go see Uncle X. So anyway, he'd let us try, and, you know, we would do it, and it'd end up like this crooked in all directions and whompered cigarette with about six or seven flakes of tobacco in it. And he would go ahead and light it, and it would just, you know, it had his cowboy hat on it, it would just flash fire, um, and he would, he would, he'd got a big kick out of it. It was pretty funny. I remember Sadie's cobblers. I remember horseshoes. I remember they had goat heads in their yard, which is bad for barefoot boys. And I remember he had this horse. Uh, he had a horse before that he was so proud of named Rowdy. Uh, somebody said about his horse one time, this horse has power steering back in the day when power steering was new. But Ginger was a different kind of animal, just a really um, good mare, easygoing mare. She's about 14 hands high, I think. You know, I mean, she seemed like a giant to me, though. And he was, my Uncle Lex was trying to initiate me into, you know, not being afraid. Again, I was like before kindergarten and all that. And so he'd try again and again, and I always did the brave thing, and I cried, and 
you know, shrunk away uh, every time. One time, he had coaxed me to the fence, and there was Ginger, and, you know, like maybe he was feeding her or something like that, and I started to reach out to her, you know, her soft nuzzle and everything, and then as I started to pull it back, Uncle Lex grabbed my wrist, and in his gruff voice, he goes, there, right? And uh, just, so I'm, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm involuntarily petting this huge horse, right? Uh, and then, you know, by the end of the day, I'm sitting on the back of the saddle, and I thought I was riding Ginger all by myself, but I think he was in the house looking out to see. But, that, you know, uh, here's, here's kind of the point, that you get put into this family, and that's, the, that's uh, uh, the man who in a lot of ways shaped my dad, and my dad shaping me. I still remember my dad uh, teaching me how to throw a baseball. What do you say? Um, put, the, put the ball behind your ear and throw it. It's not exactly the way I taught my kids. My daughter's first word was ball. Uh, both of my kids knew how to throw, throw straight. That was pretty important. But you take the, the, the lessons and you could go on and on like that. So there's just a, a little bit of mine, but you have yours, right? You have yours, the people who have you know, poured streams of importance into your life and how that shaped you, and how you see yourself, and all of that. Those are all just pieces, and while we can, the, the point is, it's like that in not perfect, but good families. Where you come into a culture, there's a family culture there, and it seems to fit Scripture that it's like this, and a child's obligation is to actually embrace that culture that God has given you, to come up into that, to understand it and to take it on. And Now, you might shake off some of the dross as you get older and you move on, but in the meantime, you honor the good culture that's there. That's the obligation of the child. So if you're a child and you're in this home, part of what you're to do, broadly speaking scripturally, is to see the culture in your family and honor that. Now, the obligation of the parents is to give them a culture in which to come up, to give them something on which to build. Let's look at Proverbs eleven, twenty-eight through 30, because that's what it talks about. This is the word of the Lord. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind, and the fool will be a servant to the wise of heart. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. Let me make a few initial observations as we think about this. Uh, but this part isn't in your handout, but it's important to me to say this. This passage is part of a broader section. In part, that's preacher speak for lower your expectations, you know, uh, that can't cover everything. But if you look at the framework of this, and not all of Proverbs lays out like this, but this passage is connected to what comes before and after. You can see it in the style. And what I'm going to say uh, after uh, applies to the before and after. So if you want to read the broader section, you can do that in the chapter before and the, and the ongoing chapter uh, after. Uh, the second thing, and it's the first thing in your handout, is this passage offers a broad invitation in the Word, whoever. But it's not just an invitation, it might be something more severe. These are general words whenever you read, whoever does this, whoever does that. Part of what he's talking about is these are general rules that just apply to anybody, including you. And what, what that means is that its truths are personal. You're not reading about something that could happen to somebody else. You're reading about something that opens up a window into what your life could be, both good or bad. 
They apply to you. Whoever does this, including you, in this passage. And then the final thing is this passage speaks in metaphor, okay, um, in, the, in terms of the way you choose to live your life. You ever met somebody who, um, you know, grew up in a different place than you did, and you can hear their accent? You know, like somebody with a Boston accent is very distinct, uh, somebody from Alabama, the Deep South, uh, very distinct and that sort of thing. It, it's its own dialect, right? It's still the English language, um, you know, but it's its own dialect, the dialect in Proverbs is metaphor. It's like picture. You get this image and you see it, and it depicts the point it's trying to make. And how it shows up here is, for example, this, uh, one of the metaphors is construction. And it, it operates on this. Like imagine that the, your, your life, you are a building, and you're building this, right? And the last thing you want to do is fall. You want to build your life in such a way that you don't fall at the end of verse 28. Or a garden. Right? It talks about being green and the produce and all of that. It's organic. It's slow and natural, but eventually it comes to something uh, worthwhile. So uh, expect less step-by-step and more metaphor. So what are we to make of it? Let's start with the issue. I'll turn the page in my notes. <laughs> start with the issue. Might look at it like this, particularly on this day, is what's the right foundation on which to build my family? What is the best way for me to lead my life and for me to lead my family? Because what do you want? I mean, part of what you want is you want your family to flourish. You want them to be courageous and creative and discerning and productive. And there's a difference between, uh, you know, like, I, don't, I want them to rise, I don't want them to fall. I, in my life, I want it to be strong and, and not to crumble, not to disintegrate. I want to produce something instead of die. What sustains that? And, how, and how, do I, how do I do that and how do I impart that to them? So what's the best way forward? What does wisdom look like here in a way that honors God and shows the life that He has? And it, you, I mean, you can see it just in these three verses, there's warning. And so a warning, what is a warning? Well, a warning is a negative promise, a promise that something will happen to you, but instead of it being a good thing, it's going to be a bad thing. And so there are two warnings in here that are worth noticing, and, and you might think of it this way. If you want to frame it in a good way um, so that you can understand it, is to say, what are the warnings about? Well, this is how families, this is how a person's life can implode uh, or come up empty. That's what it's about. So what brings families down? What, what makes them disintegrate? What makes them come up empty? And there are two things here in these negative promises. The first is this, an excessive sense of security and wealth. Uh, verse 28, the very beginning, whoever trusts in riches will fall. Whoever trusts in riches will fall. This excessive sense of security and wealth. Now, we want to clarify this, right? Because we are to provide for our families. You know, somebody who, you know, is just lazy and he doesn't work and he has no initiative and he's like, hey, you know, I'm just not a materialist. I mean, he's getting this wrong. We're supposed to labor and provide for our families and take care of them. This is a basic responsibility. The Bible does not vilify wealth itself. It's a blessing from God. So money is not the problem. Money is not the problem. What's the problem then? You can see it right there in that little phrase, whoever trusts in riches. 
Whoever trusts in riches, who, wh- wh- that's where you put your heart. That's, where, that's what you bank your life on. Not whoever has it, but your heart rests on it. And your sense of well-being comes from this. If you don't have it, you're ruined. If you do have it, you feel safe. You feel like you are who you uh, want to be. The problem here is a misplaced trust in money. So putting your trust in that when your trust should be somewhere else and in something else. And, um, since it's misplaced, it's like somebody saying, all right, here's the basic question in my life. Is, take a man on Father's Day thinking about this. What should I do? Well, should I provide for my family? Absolutely, you should. But sometimes what you can see is uh, a man trying to answer that question uh, with the rights. I want to give my children the rights. I want, to, I want them to have the right education. I want them to have the right clothes and the right friends and, and on and on. And, that, and, and, and a man can land on this idea that money is the answer. It provides security and the opportunity that they, needs, that they need. And, and whenever you look at Proverbs here, you take that approach and it, what it lets you know is something's missing. If the way you think you're going to be okay moving forward is wealth, is money, is what you have, this, the, this section in Proverbs tells you you're going to come up empty. You're going to need more than that, a, a negative promise, right? So uh, look at it. Whoever trusts in his riches, what? Will fall. And there's the dialect. There's the metaphor. So you're building something. You're building yourself. Your life is a building. Your family is a building. And why do you build a place? Uh, well, well, you build it because you, you want to do something there. You want to live there. You, you want to be secure. And that's your context for joy and, um, and experience in your life and all of that. And the last thing you want is that building to fall, to come to nothing. You know, every once in a while, you'll see it because we live in a windy place. I grew up in a windy place. And somebody starts to build something. They put the frame up. The wind, the wind comes up. And before they can get it strong and secure on that foundation, the wind comes along and blows it, right? Just gets a little resistance, a little too much, and boom, it falls. And what this proverb says is if all you've got or if it's the main thing you've got is money or the, the things kin to it, it will fall. That building's coming down. Um, it, wealth is an insufficient uh, or is insufficient to fuel a legacy that counts. So, first warning, an excessive sense of security and wealth. The second one is living in a way that keeps your family in turbulence. Look at the, uh, the beginning of verse 29. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind. Now, trouble means to unsettle. And if you think, okay, let's, let's go with the garden motif, right? Because he's going to use that here in, in this section in Proverbs. If a family is a garden, how does an unsettled garden grow? I mean, one of the best things you can do is make sure that the, <laughs> that the garden remains as untroubled as possible, right? You want it to be settled because that's the only way it's going to sink down roots. That's how it's going to flourish and find its uh, potential. An unsettled garden doesn't grow. And so he points, to, um, he points to a figure in the Old Testament, or we should point to a figure in the Old Testament, with that word trouble. I said it means to unsettle, it, never in a position uh, to thrive. It's used of Achan uh, in the book of Joshua. 
when Achan disobeyed the Lord. Now, Achan was a guy, um, they, in, in the time of Joshua, they were supposed to go in and take the land. And what Achan did was he disobeyed the Lord, and he kept, he wasn't supposed to, and so he hid this, he kept what was called the devoted things. And of course, nobody else knew, but the Lord knew, and he was punished for it. But uh, this is what Joshua says to him when he confronts him. Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And then they killed him, right? But it's trouble, trouble to unsettle. Why did you trouble us? And the proverb here says, the one who brings trouble to his own household will inherit the wind. How does that happen? How is it that somebody like you, maybe uh, well-meaning or just not a lot of initiative, how can you trouble your own household? I mean, you can obviously do it actively, right? In your relationships, you can, you can poison your relationships, you can mistreat people who ought to mean a lot to you, you can abuse them, you can neglect them, you can bully them, and so on. Um, we're living in a time that is moving increasingly to a problem of father absence. You can trouble your family by not being there. This is showing up all over the place. And it's showing up, I want you to think about this. There are lots of limits to being a father. Lots of them. And some of them are just, it's not just your ability, even if you have the right answer, sometimes you just don't even have the right answer. Right? You're not good at everything. You're not, you don't always have what it takes to say the needed thing. But there are a lot of limitations that are just uh, that go along with you, but there are a lot of limitations in terms of how you can influence um, the people who need you the most. But even though there are a lot of limits that come with being a, a father, there's no substitute for actually being there. You know, um, there's studies. I, I did a little interview with um, a psychologist friend of mine uh, recently, and you, you could take it like internal, external, behaviorally, uh, socially. And, and somebody whose dad hasn't been around, you can be in the home and not be around, by the way. There's some of these uh, features show up even there. There's going to be a greater tendency toward depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, a decreased ability to recognize your own emotions and to regulate your own emotions, you know, your less coping skills. Um, decreased sense of self. A uh, person who asks, who, d- who has this kind of disintegrated home um, because the father's uh, absent, tends to ask this question, you know, who am I? Uh, how, do, how do I prove myself? Where are my connections? What's my place in the world? And then uh, this, this goes from the inside out. There's a difference between sons and daughters, um, the studies show, but like, for example, sons tend to be uh, prematurely um, trying to compensate by being aggressive and independent, defiant, sometimes law-breaking. They're trying to uh, assert a kind of manhood uh, because that's being placed on them too soon in the vacuum of a father. Sometimes you see this with daughters, with earlier sexual activity and pregnancy. And, and, and most of the scholars think, most of the people looking at it think that they're, they're looking for love where there's an absence of it. And they're doing that way too soon and in all the wrong ways. There's a social impact, too, that there's a dropout rate that's increased, you know, that uh, kids tend not to finish school. There's substance abuse. There's poverty. And one of the things that I want you to see is as you hear the debate about what should be done in the absence of this, 
And, you know, you've got the right and the left and uh, social engineers and all that stuff trying to figure out what is the right policy? Is there a law that we can um, pass and that sort of thing? And we're, we're actually seeing it get worse where there's a kind of an intergenerational breakdown that it's not a spiral that just continues. It's a spiral that descends socially. Okay, why am I belaboring the point? Because we'll never solve at the macro level what can only be addressed at the micro level. There is not a law that can be passed that will fix this missing link in the home. And that's the basic foundation of human flourishing. He created them male and female. Be fruitful, multiply, train your children in the ways of the Lord. What do you do do about it? I mean, from, from Genesis to Proverbs to New Testament to your life, A school is not a substitute for family. There's not a law or a policy that's a substitute for family. The only fix to absence is presence, is being there. Now, you're going to be there imperfectly, okay? I mean, you just, if you want to bat a thousand, it won't take you long um, to to find out that you're not going to be able to do that. Father, absence. Um, I tell you, another way that a person troubles his home is by protecting his pet sins. Okay, that's kind of what Achan did. Uh, He still wanted to be in the group. He wanted to be in the vicinity. He wanted to be acknowledged as a a member of the group. Uh, But he wanted to keep private what dishonored the Lord. And it was his ruin, right? And so think about this. If I assume that if I have a pet sin and I don't want to deal with it, I don't want to grow through it, I don't want to repent of it, or folly or neglect... And, what, and the lie that I tell myself is this is going to have no negative ramifications. None. It'll, it'll be fine. It's, after all, it's just my sin. It just affects me. And that's not the way it works because you're positioned in such a way that you're an influence on the people around you. So what do your pet, pet sins do? Do they leave you unscathed? Do they leave you unmolested? Your pet sins shape you. They form you. They, they shape what you value. They shape how you live. They shape what you live for. They shape how you treat others and how you influence others and what you influence them toward. And again, just like Achan, the sin of the one affected the well-being of the whole. And so whenever you're, whenever you're a parent in general, but a father in particular, well, what, what you're living for is not just going to impact you. It's, it's going to be connected to people around you and the people around you who are the closest, like your kids and your wife and your grandkids and so on, whether you want it to or not. Um, so here's the negative promise. I like this little phrase, uh, just for its description. At the beginning of verse 28, or tw- I'm sorry, 29, whoever troubles his own household, what's the negative promise there? Will inherit the wind. Inherit the wind. It's a great picture. It used to be used more by the old timers. They were pretty good about uh, using that. They tended to be a little more connected to Scripture, so they would use elements of Scripture. But it's out of favor in terms of the way we talk today. But if you teach a kid's class, one of the cool exercises might be, all right, here's what I want to do, class. Let's all go outside and play. They'll be all for that. But here's the thing. You've got to catch something. Everybody want to catch something? It's kind of fun. But today it's not grasshoppers or roly-polies or anything like that. Today, what you have to do is you have to catch the wind. And when you catch the wind, whoever catches the most, you bring it back to the teacher, and that person will win a prize. It's absurd, 
right? It's, a, it's this kind of incoherent. And what, what he's doing is he's creating this picture. You're supposed to see it in your mind. This guy's trouble in his household, and he's too good for them, or he's overlooking it. He's all about himself. And, and, and the, here's the irony of it. He's about himself because he thinks that's gonna, it's going to be fulfilling. And, and what is he going to inherit? He's out there trying to grab wind. He's foolish. He's going to come up empty because he's grabbing and there's nothing there. So those are the two warnings. Well, enough probably about being negative, right? Uh, what's the alternative then? If, we're, if I'm trying to think about the best way forward uh, to honor God, that's well, well it, it's so important to heed the warnings. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's so important to heed the warnings because those are big pitfalls, so avoid those. If, if you're somebody who tends to bank on money or stuff, watch out. Your house will fall. It won't be strong, which is what you intend it to be. It'll come down. Or if you tend to want to make everything about yourself and you trouble the people around you because they're just not getting it right, everybody has to do the things so that you'll be uh, happy and you'll have the place that you want, you'll come up empty. By the way, you were designed by God to give yourself away. Nobody, the, the most selfish people are the most miserable people. It's counterintuitive, right? Why are you selfish? Well, I want to get what I want. If you're really great at getting what you want, you're going to find you're going to be a seriously unhappy person. The only way to be happy is actually to give yourself away. And it's called love. It's the only way. You're built for that. Dad, you're built for that. And if you don't give yourself away, you won't be. All right, so what's missed? What's the alternative? Uh, it's the, the right soil. The, the, there's this theme that I've been kind of hiding, but if you look at it, you can see it. And again, you can see it in the, the passage before and the passage after. This little phrase, the righteous. The righteous. Uh, it's, it's the righteousness of God working itself out on display in you. Uh, the, what's missing is having a life uh, saturated with Christ permeating your relationships and how you heat, uh, and how you live, um, it is the height of folly uh, to give everything but yourself. You ever see people do that? That um, they they do all the the things they organize different things and they um, say just say a man who makes money, but he's not connected to his kids, um, or he builds things, but. Uh, that he can give them, but he's not connected to them. Uh, it's the height of folly to give everything but yourself to provide material uh, or even attempt to uh, give yourself but have a vacant soul. There is no substitute for my life being filled with Christ and being there and engaging. Um, here's the wonderful promise. If there are negative promises, warnings that something bad will happen, here's something good. Uh, look at the passage. The righteous will flourish, at the end of verse 28, like a green leaf. Again, the metaphor dialectic. Um, look at the beginning of verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And, and the way he's pointing us the way forward is, you know what it means to be righteous? I mean, we get a clear picture of this from the New Testament. The, to be righteous means to come to God through Jesus who accomplished all of that for us, and then to live like He's the main audience of my soul. And what comes out of that, see what happens. 
And it might not be exactly what you expect, but God will do something with that that will bring glory to Him. Whether, you're in test, uh, whether you've been tested and it looks like you failed or whatever, God will do something good with the good or the bad that comes into your life. Be the righteous and watch what happens. The, uh, at the end of verse 28, he uses the word flourishing. Yeah. You know, some of you, I pointed out my cheeseburger garden. You came by the, the house yesterday. I'm glad I wasn't grilling out in this yesterday. But, every, you know, uh, it's, it feels weird to have a sunburn and then, you know, have a day like today. But, um, you know, showed off my cheeseburger garden to a couple of you. Uh, I got to see the lettuce coming up, very proud about that. Um, hanging in there for the, uh, the tomatoes and the onions and all of that. What do you want a garden to do? You want it to flourish. You want it to grow, I mean, where it's supposed to be green, you want it to be green. And you want it to produce something. And so at the end of verse 28, he says, But the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Now, green leaf is usually just the beginning. I, what do you think of green leaf? You think, oh, spring, we're, st- we're moving somewhere. This is starting, I can see life that is coming out and it's going to issue in something more. It's like the promise of produce to come. And then stronger, the beginning of verse 30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And whoever captures souls is wise. That's how God uses you. It's the way of the wise. You know it's about getting to the heart. Uh, the capturing of souls. God uses this really strong language. So if all of a sudden the metaphor shifts and you're a tree, and maybe you walked in today and you say, I'm a, I'm a tree, but I don't think I'm going to make it. Because uh, outside it might be raining, but inside it's, it's a drought right now. And I feel like I'm about to wither. But one of the things that you need to know, it's not about the weather it's about the season. Um, there's this, it doesn't hinge on the weather. There's a fruit to it in terms of what God is doing. Externally, things might be going mad. But what God is doing, working out his righteousness in you, um, turns out to be a tree of life for those around you. Here's what you need to know as a dad. Uh, you don't have to succeed for your, uh, like financially for your kids to do great. You don't have to be thought of as a particular way for your kids and your family to be great. Whatever happens, though, they need to see in you somebody who's fiercely loyal to Jesus, regardless of whether it's good or bad, because bad is coming. That's going to be part of your life. And who are you then? What kind of man are you then? What is the testimony of what's important then? Because you could be on top of the world. You could have this great status, which is awesome, but you're not going to keep that. And they might not acquire it. But what they will see is that you choosing, uh, you choosing what is most important, regardless of whether or not life is easy or really hard. And that will stick. And God will do things with that he couldn't even uh, imagine. Um, so back to the issue. What's the best way? It's not, it's not riches, it's righteousness. Uh, it can't be selfishness. It's got to be giving yourself away. And that's not something that you can uh, throw at them. You, you have to give it to them yourself. This has got to be something that you offer to them incarnate. You have to bring what you believe in connection with them in terms of your presence and your life and how you love them. You've got to embody it. So let me just say this and we'll close. Uh, it's, it's possible that today could mark a turning point for you. 
Because whether it's like family life or parenting or just the malaise of culture, you might just be going along and you might be fatigued. You might be dull of, of, of uh, spirit, right? You're just not sharp. And this could be a, a turning point for you. So maybe you're going, man, I'm failing in strength. I mean, I just feel like I'm about to, to, to wither up. And I just want to remind you, it's not the weather, uh, it's not the moment, it's actually the fruit. So don't judge yourself by this moment. Don't judge yourself by how you feel. You're not always going to feel good. Continue on. And God will give you the grace to renew your spirit. And there'll be a season behind this one, and you'll get to see fruit come out of it. But only if you walk with Jesus now. The other thing that I would say is we, we keep saying all this centers on Jesus. This might be the day that you look at it and you go, I need to just come. I need to come to God through Jesus, the one who can address my sin, the one who can give me life, the one who gives me a share in his kingdom. And then out of that, regardless of what happens, uh, I know I'm secure. I know I am who he's called me to be. And so I'd invite you to do that. I would invite you, one, not to lose heart, um, just because the the weather's bad uh, in your soul right now. And two, I would invite you to come to Jesus and have what God promises is true and free and forever, and that's a share in his kingdom. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for the privilege of, um, you know, being able to have a role in families and be fathers. I pray in particular for the dads in the room that rather than getting discouraged, um, that, that, that they would keep on, and that the process, that out of the process, that they would see the fruit that come from that, a tree of life that uh, really informs everybody else. I pray for kids in the room who, and they, they might be as old as 80, uh, who don't have uh, dads. And I pray that you would encourage them that you're the perfect father, um, that, that you can make up any gap and that that person can live for you and have a legacy that matters. I also pray that as I think about in the culture in which we live, the disintegration of the family, I pray that the church would be a powerful counterculture and this church in particular, where husbands love their wives and, lives, and wives uh, respect their husbands and uh, their kids flourish because mom and dad care about them and point them to Jesus and are consistent. And may you bring much of it. We also just pray that what doesn't get lost in that is the glory of Jesus, Lord and Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.